Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 173. In this episode, we're talking about longing to know and teaching with Professor Esther Meek. Professor Esther Meek is Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Geneva College and Senior Scholar at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, and she's the author of the book Longing to Know, The Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, we are doing part two of our conversation with Professor Meek in honor of the 20th anniversary of her classic book, Longing to Know. Specifically here, we're focused on the insights of her book as it relates to teaching, as it relates to our pedagogy. Chris and Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Professor Meek? Building off of our conversation in the last episode with Dr. Meek, where we talked about in general, her vision for how it is we come to know things. We then ask her in this episode a lot of questions about what are the implications of that for teaching? How do we as teachers, whether it is in the church or at the university or parenthood, how do we think about implementing the paradigm of knowing that she gives us in those different areas? Yeah, in this conversation, uh, Esther Meek talks a lot about uh, the relationship between teaching and learning. Um, they are not the same thing. You can teach without having anyone learn. And uh, I think that it's an important distinction to uh, to be aware of. For me, one of the things that I will continue to think about is our posture of, of learning. Um, she talks about criticism. Um, and we, I think in some ways, take that to be a virtue of learning, to be critical. There's a moment in that conversation when she talks about a posture of openness uh, that's the uh, the opposite of criticism, which might eventually lead to cynicism. That's, that, that's, still, that's still hitting home right now, and um, I'll think about it some more. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Esther Mead. Well, Professor Meek, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast again to continue this conversation in honor of the 20th anniversary of your book, Longing to Know. Welcome back to the Two Cities Podcast. It's so good of you to have me. I really appreciate it. So with this conversation, we're excited to talk about teaching and pedagogy as it relates to the insights of your book. As we begin this conversation, could you tell us a little bit more about your your book, Longing to Know, but specifically this concept of subsidiary focal integration? Could you tell us a little bit more about what that is as a way to kind of set up this conversation? I'd be happy to. Um, Subsidiary focal integration is this idea of how knowing works that I got from this premier scientist turned philosopher, Michael Polanyi, the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, because Longing to Know is a book where I try to talk to ordinary people in ordinary language, I only use those words like in one chapter. (laughs) 
so when I define knowing uh, in the part headings, okay, uh, what I say is knowing is the responsible human struggle, which is my ordinary way of saying integration. And there's chapters about that in part two. And then part three is to rely on clues. That's the word subsidiary. And then four, part four is to focus on a pattern and submit a coherent pattern and submit to its reality. So that's kind of my way of trying to write out what he meant by subsidiary focal integration. So um, we talked about bike riding a little bit last time and uh, bike riders, uh, if you think of yourself riding a bike where your focus is, is on the carrying out the performance and getting down the path. Um, you uh, are subsidiary, airily relying on an indwelling, that was Polanyi's word, uh, your felt sense of the bike. It's almost like you're wearing the bike and it's become an extension of your body. And so if you hit gravel, you feel it and you know what it means. And uh, But that's all your subsidiary awareness. And it's not, you can't, you don't wanna say it's automatic because you absolutely rely on, on that attunement to the bike. If you're gonna get your license, at least here, your sta the state police have to, have to test your peripheral vision, not because they want you to look at the cars on either side, because you rely on, you have to subsidiarily rely on your peripheral vision to, to orient with regard to, to driving and the same thing with uh, biking. So all knowing has this from to, subsidiary focal integrative structure. And your job is not to eliminate the subsidiary, but to uh, become a virtuoso at it, okay? So it can be mistaken, it can be trained, it can be honed to artistry, but the point about the subsidiary is it can't be put on into words at the point that you're enacting it, right? So no information articulated as such could be subsidiary, which then begs the question, okay, how does one learn and how does one teach, <laughs> right? And, and see, that's the trick. And, and one thing to, be, to say about both of those is the teacher is utterly at the mercy of the student to get it. So that ought to be humbling. <laughs> and then the teacher's job is, is not, well, okay, there's information that needs to be communicated. Again, like the times table, uh, that sort of thing. But And there's information that needs to be memorized, but the teacher also needs to be speaking in maxims, and this also was Polanyi's word. So the teacher has to utter things to get the student's body to feel it. And this is particularly evident if you contemplate coaches <laughs> or, or piano teachers or viola teachers that somehow have to utter words that make their students' bodies work right. Right. So because 
it, it one of the things you have to see about uh, teaching is is that it has to has to engage this subsidiary area. So that's just one one thing to say. I'm thinking about my role currently as a professor in the place that I am with the students that I have and the courses that I'm um, required to teach. And, and I've been thinking a lot about how to, how to, and to what extent I can incorporate these insights, because of course things are set up for just frontal lectures, you know, mar- massive classes, that sort of thing. That's so hard. So it's quite difficult, but you know, many college courses are, it's an art history course, right? Here, learn this information about art history, um, or even a philosophy course, an intro to philosophy. Um, to me, I can understand how in a, the people in the athletics department really have the ability to live into what you're talking about in terms of teaching. Yeah. But how would you recommend those of us who maybe are are in different structures that make that hard? At all of your years of teaching, what is it that you've done? Well, I've said to my students, uh, you want to find and choose the teacher that's got a sparkle in their eye about what they're teaching and also about you. (laughs) But in particular, what they're teaching, they've got to be enthralled with it because that's the most important thing for you to catch is the contagion of loving the real. And our job as teachers is to cultivate lovers of the real. That's it. That's it. And if you have, your job is done. <laughs> and if you haven't, <laughs> you haven't begun. <laughs> right? It's just, you have, the, and, and one of the things about this approach to knowing is it restores excitement to the adventure of knowing. It restores confidence. You know, if you're a great, surfer what do you want you want a bigger wave (laughs) you know it's like you want you want students who love the real and so somehow your contagion needs to come through just all through whatever you open your mouth to say and uh i i uh personally i i stumble over my words i i am so flawed in my presentation I don't work from lecture notes particular. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm just so subpar, but I could bottle excitement and sell it. And my students through the years have trusted my excitement. And then I do, I, I also learned, a, a TA pointed this out to me, that the students in the class, you know, the teacher stands up there and looks out at the students of the class. And this has actually nothing to do with epistemology it has everything to do with etiquette good manners and i for me i decided on the moment that rachel said this to me that i hospitality was going to be my approach to the classroom and so my obligation she pointed out that the students don't know each other this teacher stands up there and thinks it's me and them and they're a body and they're kind of in tune they are not they have not been introduced. And people today have lost the art of the good manners of making introductions. And so I spend just about every beginning of every class doing some crack brainy mixer that requires one person to talk to another. Oh, they've got to find, you know, some article of clothing that they 
have in common. Okay, but it can't be underwear, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, uh, or, or, you know, some odd thing that they have in common, or, you know, they've got to run around the room and do, okay, now I know you've got like 95 students, which I haven't often had. <laughs> but I, I guess I feel like even when I lecture quote unquote to 95 students and I have a PowerPoint, somehow I've got to wear my lecture in a way that it, literally what you're doing as an authoritative guide is inviting your students into your body because how else are they going to know what's in your head? You know, so they literally have to indwell your body. Now that sounds very exposed, but that's what a good teacher has to do is welcome, welcome them. They've got to be made at home with each other and at home with getting inside me. And then, you know, you kind of tell them how it's gonna go. I always, you know, I said, look, in, in history of philosophy, my job is to, you know, help you get from point A to, you know, to get point A and point B and then have some idea of the story between them, <laughs> you know, those kinds of, of things. The other thing I said, and I think this is so important, is with this approach, subsidiary focal integration, uh, you have to, what this approach does is it allows you to accredit what you ought to accredit, which is, first of all, clues, which are half understandings, and accredit anticipative knowing that you can have a sense that you're on your way to something, but you aren't there yet. And there is no paradigm of knowledge in the informational uh, approach that makes any sense of clues or anticipative knowing. So then, you know, I to uh, put my students at ease, you know, I said, look, do you know, you can write this test without very much understanding it because you can memorize what would be a good answer. And then you can write it out on the test. And I'm not going to grade your psyche. <laughs> you know, I'm going to grade how well you put those, those words together on the test. And I uh, honor that not as knowledge, but as yet another way I have to prompt you to indwell the thing I'm trying to help you to get. And so people can learn from the test because it forced them to put into words. I, I love three sentence short answers. You know, I've just used them continually. And, and uh, if you can, if you could say Plato's doctrine of the forms and a three sentence short answer, and I'm happy with it, I've done something <laughs> and you, and you ought to, you ought to, you know, I, I, the other thing is when I hand back the test, I say, look, this is our Ebenezer moment. Thus far hath the Lord helped us. You know, look what he's helped us to do. Celebrate that. How do you maintain that excitement to give to your students? Well, the thing that takes my excitement away is going to faculty meetings. <laughs> but I, you know, I think what I, uh, especially appreciate about not being in the classroom now is, um, you know, it's, it's such a risky thing. And, you know, you give your all and you feel like you're just, you just took off all your clothes. It just, uh, 
and you know uh, young people they they do not understand like one of my dear colleagues uh said this uh and uh, you know in some sort of public whatever but sh she said if a student is not for me she's against me and i feel it and and that's what'll take it from you so i would say especially you know i've had a, a you know for all my antics and stuff like that you know you you get uh, one student who's suspicious and it's awful it's just awful so uh one of the things you do is uh develop friendships with colleagues that will um say look you're doing good this is really good and and you have to learn you have to learn to see and hear some gazes and responses and then dispel others and you do then you do have to be okay with your flaws and and like i said you know telling the students look i'm at your mercy you know i there is nothing i can do to make you learn unless you covenant yourself on day one to do what i say in i read them their rights in the in the syllabus you know and then i you know, i say you know if we could have a boy scout ceremony here <laughs> where you covenant yourself to say okay i i I've got to trust this lady. <laughs> She's going to teach me whatever it is, you know. Uh, and then you have to commit. You have to commit to do it. So I I lay all that out pretty explicitly. And and that's kind of maximic stuff. I tell them stories about um, my two best students ever. One is Troy Miller, who I'm about to interview. Troy is a pastor now, but Troy would sit now this is not video but he would sit like this on the edge of his seat while I'm doing the history of philosophy and he'd lean over to whoever was sitting next to him probably Mary and uh say this is awesome this is isn't this awesome this is awesome well everybody needs somebody like that everybody needs Troy in their class it changes everything and then Ben I called him Mr. FBLA future business leaders of America. I mean, you know, he just like, he just looked like the business major that he was. Every day I came to class, Ben was sitting on the edge of my desk, looking out at the class. He was just sitting there and he has this grin and he just sat there. And then I would walk in and he'd say, hello, Dr. Meek. And then he'd go and sit down. <laughs> no, what was that? <laughs> you know, I don't even know, but you know, he, it was like he was shepherding somehow, presiding this, this, whatever this was that was going on. I think things like that, you, you learn to pay attention to. And you see, if you see that your job is, okay, there's stuff you got to say, but what you're doing is you're forming, you're cultivating lovers of the real, right? That's what you're, that's what you're after. And I will stop at nothing to do that. And I will resent and resist even a student's own uh inhibit inhibiting of their own whatever gets in the way of their learning to love i'll stand up against it how do you do that well sometimes you got to take some people out of the out and talk to them 
I talk to them about, um, <laughs> in humanities class, I tell them about puppy socialization training <laughs> and about how, you know, when all we all brought our puppies in and this wise lady had us all, you know, letting the puppies off the leash and running around. And there were two puppies that were utterly terrorized and climbed into the armpit of their master or mistress. And so the next time, well, or maybe it was the second hour at the time, she said, okay, everybody get their dogs back on the leash and make them sit between your legs for me to talk to you for an hour, except for those two dogs. And so those two dogs were left to themselves while all the other dogs were leashed and sitting between their master's legs. Well, the next week, those dogs were different dogs. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would, you know, if I had some high talkers in the discussion and everybody had to get discussion points, I found that or some other way to say, look, I love everything you say, but you've got to let <laughs> some other people go first. Or I had to find a way to help the other people to go to go first. So. Uh, Dr. Meek, uh, you write about um, in the process of learning uh, the role of teachers um, as authoritative guides. I was yeah. wondering if you can elaborate a little bit about um, the role of teachers in 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 the in the journey in the adventure of learning. Yeah, oh, it, it's it was such a um, almost a realization to me as I was writing, longing to know. Um, the role of authoritative guides in knowing. And, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, knowing God is like knowing my auto mechanic. I also talk about the magic eye 3D pictures. And um, uh, you can Google them to figure out what they are if you don't remember. <laughs> but, but I realized that um, those magic eyes made no sense unless you read the directions. You, you know, you didn't even know what the thing was you were looking at apart from the directions. And that would be how it would be if I went to a calculus class. And let's say I, I, I needed to get an A in it. <laughs> you know, I, I would, I have no, I have no uh, gut sense of calculus. <laughs> you know, I would just have to be clinging to the words of the authoritative guides. The authoritative guides words might not even make sense when I'm beginning. But somehow I've got to try to climb climb into them. So uh, and, and I I love also thinking about like uh, coaching or or music teachers, you know, who who have to uh, uh, utter sentences that that even uh, speak authoritatively to people's bodies. You know, this is how you should be feeling. This is how you shouldn't be feeling. Da, 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 da. I remember the viola teacher saying to my daughter, it's your fingers that have to learn the distance between A and G, you know, that that sort of a thing. So um, it's interesting to raise the question in this day and age when we are so uh, fearful of authority and we have been so hurt by authority, you know, uh, and I, I would say the, the same thing is true of modernity. If you take Dave, Descartes as the father of modern philosophy, he is so anti-authority, right? And so in our, our default model of knowing, there's no component with regard to, to authoritative guides. But see, uh, then on the, the other hand, you know, if you've got people that are in the kind of 
exalted information mode. And, and, you know, teachers are tempted to this, like, because it feels nice that we can be like Charlotte Mason would say, talky, talky, and we're kind of the in control of, of the information. It shouldn't be like that either. Right. So, so you've got, uh, I think the idea of a coach is uh, perhaps a better model for how the authoritative guide should work. And so this idea of uttering maxims uh, that make you feel or, you know, bodily sense, or, uh, you know, you can also see the teacher, I, I've said this recently, it, it, like as themselves a maxim. So I would say to my students, look, you know, you, I, uh, down in the basement of Old Main is a, build, is a box where I have carried my college notes all the way through my life but I've never opened the box. <laughs> but what I remember is the teachers. And in my aspiring to be like Jim Greer, I, my job was not to parent him, but to become more myself. And so in, in kind of living into his, the maxim that he was, I became me. And, that, and that's what what should good should go on that's why you want a teacher whose passion for the real is love because that's what you want to become uh dr meek uh i uh i work uh and serve in a church uh, uh primarily with uh working with young kids and i am curious to know um how you would uh help somebody like me or other ministers um to teach in order for folks in church to learn, um, uh, learn how to be a child of God, learn Christ in, in Paul's language. Um, how do some of these principles apply so for teachers uh, that, that have the, the heart and the goal to have uh, kids learn about, about yeah, God? Well, um, actually, that I think is really kind of almost the paradigm the case in point, your job at church is in and in life. Life, you could say, there's a a little chorus: "Show us Christ," right? And your job at church is to make him be present. So, and I think Dallas Willard, philosopher, spiritual disciplines guy, who's being dead yet speaketh through. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of, of social media. But, you know, in, in talking about discipleship in uh, his um, divine conspiracy from Sermon on the Mount, there's two things. There's two things to discipling. And the first one is you've got to do everything you can so that the disciple falls in love with Christ. And so I, whatever our else we're doing at church and that can involve memorizing the books of the bible scripture memory da, 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 da. but somehow you've got to have in the the whole thing of what you do at church and i would say this is what the point of the eucharist is it <laughs> is uh encounter with christ so that the lord walks in and takes over and that's our, that's our job. That's our job. And see, I would say that's, that's why I say what we're made for is communion with the real. And the real includes, uh, obviously, you know, obviously, if the word's communion, <laughs> you might have, they might have religious overtone. But I think a woodworker communes with his wood. 
or her wood, you know? And, and if they don't, the, the, there's not artistry, you know, in, in, in the product. But, and then, you know, we're called to be lovers of the real because reality at bottom, I'm going to speak as a, a Bible believer now, is the word of love of the Lord. Everywhere your eye lands, you're seeing a let there be here, now, here, now. I mean, if God wants to let himself be known, I mean, he's just screaming at us. There's no secret code. <laughs> you know, it's like he's he's so in our face. And so that means knowing from a theological point of view, knowing ought to be in loved encounter because reality is love. It's the it's so it's this it's the same medium. So and I I think our churches, well, here I'm gonna take the new begin. David Kettle critique of the church in, in the modern West, it's been domesticated. It's been castrated. Uh, why? Because it got in bed with a modernist epistemology. And, uh, you know, in your conversion moment, you might get it that you just got taken over by the loving Lord of the universe and it just changed everything. But you can then go to church and find that that just, just got put in the corner. And now you've got to, you know, learn this and that and da -da 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 -da. somebody says there's three advents. One is the first advent. The second is the second. advent, <laughs> But the third is every time you open your Bible. You are being encountered. And I, th I think that goes with subsidiary focal integration. And this is what I've, how I've augmented it into covenant epistemology and loving to know. Because when you have the aha moment, let's say you figured it out about riding a bike and you go, oh, and it's like the world comes to you in beautiful bike paths. And you have this sense of having been put together in this beautiful performance right well that is encounter-esque and so uh michael polani would you know say oh by the way you know you've made contact with reality because you have this sense of indeterminate future possibilities that's actually that that sentence is what i wrote my dissertation on because that was the one word of hope to this baby skeptic <laughs> And I could make contact with reality and know it through its excitable possibilities, which went with my excitability, Amber, <laughs> you know, but, but I've gone on to argue, I start this in longing to know, to say, look, it's, it's not that reality answers your questions so much as that, it, as that it explodes them. And that's how, you know, you've made contact with reality. It's that your questions are changed, <laughs> right? And, and so uh, that is more like a person self-revealing and, and encountering. And so that's why I've, I've kind of aligned this aha moment with face-to-face -face encounter. You know, that line in Avatar where she says, I see you. That's, that's it. When, when she says, I see you, that blue lady, you know, it, it's, it's this moment of face-to-face -face encounter. And Amber, back to your comment about, uh, you know, sustaining excitement, you need to be seen. 
You've got, there's got to be faces in your life who see you with noticing regard. And it, and you pay attention to their gaze, you, their gaze. So you see them seeing you, right? Which takes you back to infancy, right? You have to see yourself being seen. That's how you know who you are, what you are, that you're there. You know, as you've been talking about face-to-face encounters and uh, thinking about this as, you know, something that's occurring in in ecclesial and academic spaces with our teaching, um, I'm curious your, what your thoughts are about online pedagogy for, for those of us in academic settings that are teaching increasingly more and more online as we think about this kind of disembodied quasi-gnostic mode of uh, you know, information uh, transfer. Um, what are some ways in which we can, you know, foster that connection with the real and that that approximation of face-to-face encounter? Uh, what what thoughts do you have? Oh, that's so great. Well, uh, I have to relate this. So when I had, I was uh, faced with being asked to make my logic class online at Geneva College. And so uh, the conscientious uh, teacher head of this made us uh, sign up and take this course that the online company provided. And it was on just what you're saying. So how do you uh, cultivate presence in an online course? And, you know, from a Polanian point of view, it was great. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was just, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, there are things you do to make people feel at home in unusual situations. And, and uh, it is really, really hard, especially if perish the thought you had 95 people in five windows, you know, across your screen. That's awful. But you, there's other ways that you that you have to compensate to for that. And uh, if you can find a way to be in person or at least one to one, you know, I do. Th- I do think we've really uh, adjusted pretty well. But it's maybe it's a little like the chat GPT thing. Don't take it to be the paradigm of hospitality, you know, but make make do with it. If if this is what if if what I can offer you is my hour on the screen with you, please take it as as my gift. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm honored by your presence and da da da. You know, here's here's the netiquette, all that kind of stuff. But what I had the the thing I had to tell you about the story is another thing we had to do in one of those classes was we had to um, compose a little PowerPoint to introduce ourselves. So I made my little PowerPoint to introduce myself, and I said something about philosophy, and uh, you know, I'm a philosopher and and uh, Christian and and that sort of thing. Well, do you know, the teacher wrote me a personal email, and he said. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm so interested. And he said, I'm a Christian and I, I'm doing a, a PhD on women in philosophy. <laughs> so, and he was like the guy that was teaching these classes. So the next time we went to, oh, it was, it may have been when I met you, Amber, in San Antonio, that, that conference, when you and I first met, 
Danny McDonald and I met in person for breakfast. <laughs> you know, so he came out from behind, 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 you know, and we actually, we had breakfast together. So take this as a poor substitute that also then allows us to have conversations with people in New Zealand and, you know, all, all the stuff, the wonderful stuff that it does do. I feel that knowing works this way in every corner of life, which means I love to hear people, experts talk about knowing in their field. And then I want to show them how subsidiary focal integration is what they're doing. And so early on, you know, I had a surgeon who reached out to me and said, could you come talk to my, my colleagues and my surgery students? Because this is how I do surgery. And then another woman that said, well, I'm a voice teacher. This is what I do when I teach voice, <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of how it goes. And that's one of the things that's so fun about this is people do connect. Well, this is how you ride a bike. You know, you want to see subsidiary foot, foot or subsidiary focal integration. You watch a football game. That's subsidiary focal integration. Play after play after play after play. You know, so it's it's so it's so fun that way. So there is no corner of the world. I challenge you, you know, if I can have taught you subsidiary focal integration, and then what I would do is get students to identify a knowing venture and then undergo it and then identify features of knowing as I as I say they are. And it it was transformative, you know, pretty, pretty consistently. But in loving to know. And in my new book, um, Doorway to Artistry, I do make a big deal about the, the mother and the child, you know, um, and I'm there's other philosophers who have done this before me. But, you know, when you are born, you come out the chute and somebody catches you and looks at you with rapture. <laughs> Right. And that's the that first loving gaze of the other. And so you you are composed philosophically uh, in, in, in given all that you need, an entire ontological paradise, as Balthazar calls it, you know, uh, comes to be in, in the loving gaze of the mother. And so, um, yes, this this all does apply there. And, and uh, that's why I say to my students, you know, you've got, and I'm saying it to you, Amber, with regard to, you know, teaching, you've got to see the people who see you with regard and you have to see them seeing you. And then you got to cling to that and shut the other stuff out. I'm not a proponent of criticism as a learning practice. I think I, I told my students, look, you do not want the Zachariah po posture. You want the posture of the Blessed Mother Mary right? You know, if you slouch back and you fold your arms and say, oh yeah, show me. I know that's what they say in Missouri, but uh, if we're, if we bring to something a critical, whatever, what that does is it automatically removes us from the involvement with the real. And so we hide behind critique. We also, students hide behind cynicism. It's just not cool to be passionate. It's just not. That's part of modernity. So, so I, I, I do talk to students about that too. I'm not, I don't think, okay, I understand you ought to, 
be aware of your worldviews and all that stuff. But I, I guess I just think love. You want to posture love like Mary did. I mean, that was really exposed what she did. <laughs> or even, I, I love that you say Mary. I am also thinking of the three kings. So you talk about learning as this epiphanic moment. So, yep. you know, and it was the the three wise men who took a clue and they literally threw themselves into it and made a remarkable discovery as a result of it. That's a, that's the, that's the picture of little manual for knowing every book has a little something visual and that's, that's the one for little manual. Yeah. I love that. I love that story. That's just so cool. Yeah. It made yeah. me think how you were talking earlier about students being aware of what's happening in their bodies as they're receiving this information, you know, and kind of catching the excitement. And I, I was thinking about the posture of prayer and worship that, you know, should be inspired by uh, our teaching, especially if they are encountering the real uh, and if the real is love uh, and and that obviously that outpouring of, of, of love that, that, would flow back into uh worship and 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 prayer so just thinking about that that bodily response uh aspect that you were talking about as well seminary by the way can be deadly if you've got a defective model and i think graduate institutions especially play into the defective model and so of all places for you to have the knowledge is information mindset. I mean, that's the, I'm all the stories about people going to seminary and losing their faith. I've got, so there's a texture about education, loving to know an education it's in, in loving to know, but we, we have got, I think we've got to teach epistemology constantly. We have got to teach this particular healing approach to knowing all the time, day in and day out, and then we have to enact it. And yes, I mean, it is destructive analysis. That was Polanyi's phrase, which is temporarily reverting to focus on what you should indwell. But the point is, it shouldn't be the paradigm. It's temporary. You you don't live life at the driving range, <laughs> right? You go to the golf course. Well, in seminary, you've got to, you've got to memorize whole piles of stuff in learning Hebrew, right? Or whatever it is. But then there's got to be some things that push them to the subsidiary. And I would say chapel <laughs> or the, you know, uh, the book of common prayer, you know, morning prayer, evening prayer. You know, in my classes, I often did the noonday prayer. We did that. We started every class with the noonday prayer, you know, just, just so that you you make it that you you're enacting this transformative encounter so actually you know longing to know the the driving uh, analogies knowing god is like knowing your auto mechanic well it though i don't use it this way in loving to know effectively i'm saying knowing your auto mechanic is like knowing god so in other words it should be really good for your golf game to be a christian I think um, it's it's helpful to then think about, okay, this paradigm applying to how we know and how we teach, how we learn and how we teach in a variety of different areas. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to speak about your own experience as being a mother. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say before that becoming a mom was the best philosophical training you've ever had. How would you map this onto your experience of motherhood? Well, I 
I regularly say, uh, here's your first job as a parent, and that's delight. Like over the edge, delight. And uh, I'm standing by that one. <laughs> you know, you, it's like, I alone, even as my children are adults, I alone, maybe in their world, am entitled to wax rhapsodic <laughs> about whatever it is they're doing and be absolutely crazy about them. Okay, it's different when they're a little different when they're adults, but you know, my, let me tell you about my middle child, Stacy. She's queen of the highways in St. Louis, she's a highway engineer. She spends millions of taxpayer dollars to repair I-70. <laughs> and then, you know, she meets with the governor or she meets with the, the, the head of the, the city. And I call that, you know, the Mulan moment, <laughs> you know, where my baby's grown up and saving China. <laughs> so that I, I get to be excitable with regard to my children. But then the other thing is, you know, the role of the authoritative guide, my child doesn't even see my nose until I say nose, eyes, ears. So I am privileged to word their world into reality almost. It's amazing. Um, Walker Percy has a famous essay called Naming and Being, where he talks about us being co-celebrants of what is. And so I and the baby can say eyes, mouth, right? Kiss, right? So, so that that's so formative of a person's, of a little person's life. And, and we get to do that. This approach to knowing is intrinsically healing because it returns you to yourself. I mean, you, you say the word epistemology and people run the other direction, <laughs> right? And so I have to say, look, it's going to be okay because we're going to walk out of here grinning from ear to ear because I named what you're already doing. So don't be frightened. You, you're gonna have to trust me on this one, <laughs> you know, and, and then, um, then see when you see what it is that you're actually doing, you do not look at your foot on the pedal on the bike. That is not knowledge and it'll kill you <laughs> right? It, because it'll block reality. But when you, when you're able to identify what it is that you're actually doing that keeps you on the bike, then that's what connects you with the world. You know, to see a great athlete doing what they do. I mean, the, the Super Bowl really was a good game. And both, both of those quarterbacks were amazing. And, and it was artistry. I just think it was artistry. You know, it just incredible. And just to be able to witness that, to see that, it, it's kind of an honor to see that, you know, but that's, you know, it's like this approach to knowing is what unleashes you to be connected with the world. Those quarterbacks connect. That's the whole point. That's what they're paid for. 
to make plays and to get the touchdowns. You know what I'm saying? They they connect with the real. And then it becomes this dance of communion with the real, that it's this utter delightful involvement of this unfolding covenantally constituted relationship. When you figure out how to take care of a rose bush, that's the beginning of a great relationship, right? So you, you're freed up to be connected with the real that you were made to commune with. Well, Professor Meek, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and just modeling this excitement that we ought to foster in our in our students uh, and that we ought to display uh, back to them. I just really appreciate your enthusiasm and everything that you shared with us. So thank you so much. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I really appreciate that. 